I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends. Welcome to the show. Thanks for spending a little time with me today. I just got back from Nashville, Tennessee, where I was so lucky and honored to attend the Syngap Research Fund Science and Family Conference. Thank you to Mike Gralia and to all the Syngapians for your generosity, your inspiration, and your loving open arms. I had so much fun. I recorded some tidbits from some of the families there and really hope to do more of these family conferences moving forward. So if you think that that would be cool for your patient advocacy group and you want me at your conference, please get in touch with me. Okay, today's guest is one of my new favorite people. And I actually got to hug her in person a couple days ago in Nashville, so that was extra special. She's a rare mom and founder of the Rory Bell Foundation in honor of her daughter, Rory Bell, who had NARS-1. She's also a clinical pharmacist who is on a mission to make a difference for our kids with the specialty that she brings to the table surrounded treating our kids with her pharmacological expertise, including advocating for palliative care for rare families. We are so lucky to have her on our team. And I have no doubt she will be front and center moving forward. So watch out and please enjoy my conversation with Rachel Heilman. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the show. Hi, Yaffe. Thanks for having me. Oh, my gosh. I met you not too long ago. Julia Vitarello introduced us, and I'm so grateful that she did from the moment I met you. So I'm so happy you're here. And I can't wait to have a conversation with you and get everyone else to meet you and hear about all the important work you're doing and a little bit about your story. Give us a little intro. I'd love to hear about you as a mom. I'd love to hear about little Rory. Yeah. So, yeah, my name's Rachel Heilman. I like to talk about myself in terms of my past life when it comes to my professional career or pre-Rory. And I think like all of us do in the rare rare world, there's what we did before and who we are now and how that's actually, for me at least, has made me a better person and human and mom. And, and so in my past life, I was a clinical pharmacy specialist. Um, and so I've spent uh, almost 15 years in the clinical pharmacy world, you know, in clinic working with physicians and nurses and part of a care team taking care of patients and then also in the managerial space managing people like me who work in medical specialties alongside uh, physicians and mostly in in the adult medicine world but you know I, I worked in a large healthcare organization and you know even before my daughter Rory was born um, I was drawn to sort of rare disease and bridging the gap um, in care for these kiddos 
especially as um, gene therapy started coming out um, and, and new therapy started coming out um, and partnering with uh, our local children's hospital here in Denver on making sure we could get them the right care when they when they needed it. So that's kind of my past life. My daughter, Rory Bell, was born in October of 2019, sick from the beginning, although you don't, as a mom, want to, know, want to recognize that. And she was very uh, quickly uh, hospitalized for failure to thrive after three months started seizure, started seizing actually in the hospital. And we went through a very quick diagnostic, but still hoop jumping odyssey to get her diagnosis. She was about eight months old, diagnosed with NARS-1 disease. At the time, no published literature on this disease. But uh, we've been very fortunate to since find the researcher who's discovered the gene as being pathogenic and has really committed her career to NARS-1 and, and um, moving forward with the Rory Bell Foundation, just like so many of these other moms out there and dads, to finding cures. My daughter, uh, Rory, passed away in February of 21 from NARS-1 disease, which is very typically a neurodevelopmental disease. In her case, you know, her inheritance from myself and my husband uh, was just too significant for her to sustain. And she died comfortably in our home with palliative care and hospice, which is exactly what we could have wished for her and wanted for her. And that's led me to here and led me to Julia and you, Effie, and combined brain now, sort of pivoting my career, and here we are. Hopefully that, that, that gives the audience an idea of my 40 years of life, <laughs> basically. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I was just looking at a photo of Rory that you sent me earlier, and she was <laughs> just being a cute little roly-poly baby with her middle finger out. <laughs> I love that. I love that visual for everyone. And I think that's so funny. You have that picture of her. It's so sweet. It's one of my favorite. And I, have, I mean, that's her in the hospital. So that was like right when the pandemic hit um, in March of uh, 2020. And her loving brother brought home a bunch of school viruses um, from, <laughs> from kindergarten. And uh, we had to go in. Um, so she was growing uh, two GI viruses and two respiratory viruses. None of those COVID, but she had had it. <laughs> I'm sitting there in my lap in the hospital in total isolation because that's the way things were then. And she was just telling me in the world, you know, Screw you. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. I think it's a good I think it's a good way moving forward, too. And I can tell that that's kind of what you're doing. And you said that you had like two lives that you've lived. But I feel like someone in your shoes probably lives a different life every every morning that you wake up, especially with having a little a little boy in the house and then your career and COVID and then Rory passing away, it just seems like it probably turns over more often than not. Uh, you know, I don't know that that's any different for me than it is for for you or anybody else out there. You know, I think the, the only difference for me is like I wake up every morning, like knowing that Rory's not here. And so I, you know, move forward to make a deliberate choice to, to, to make decisions for her and to be grateful for the things that I have in front of me. And I do feel like in our community that that is, you know, the strength that binds us and also, you know, finds us a commonality in being able to move forward and to do the things that we do every day. And I will just say like for us, like the pandemic and COVID, like it was a blessing because I 
could work from home and I could do my job from home and I could still care for my daughter and I could still have time, you know, with her and my son and my son with her. And I don't know if that would have been possible without it. I've heard that from several families who have lost their kiddos during COVID. And I am so grateful that you have that perspective. And I'm also just so soothed by the fact that making a choice right, is something in in your line of sight and the power of choosing your story and where you're going from that and how much of a difference that can make in your day to day is just so important. Yeah. My goodness. Okay, Rachel. So let's talk about let's talk about that other part of your life then. Tell us what a clinical pharmacist is. Yeah. So a clinical pharmacist is someone who works alongside your care provider to, you know, help improve the care for patients. And so in my space and the people that I worked with, we all were residency trained. So each of us did another year or two after pharmacy school to gain extra skills and insight uh, and expertise to be able to practice, you know, to our fullest potential and scope and, and then work you know, with our physician partners and our nursing partners in the office to, to administer care. You know, sometimes that is like just flat out managing disease diseases for folks. So, you know, if you had diabetes, for instance, you know, I, a clinical pharmacist might call you and manage your diabetes end to end, you know, adjust your medications, talk to you about your diet, you know, maybe integrate in a dietitian if you needed a little extra support, start insulin, adjust insulin, order your labs. And so that's kind of a big broad picture of what that might look like from a like a really common disease state. And then the other thing, which I think is probably more applicable to our conversation today is when your physician or provider would just get stuck on, you know, what's the next thing that I can do for this patient? They come to us. And so I think about that often with our kiddos because pediatric medicine doesn't have a ton of data, period, and a lot of drugs approved, and a lot of it is off-label. Uh, and then when you start getting into rare disease space, it's even, it's even more sparse. And so we were kind of, you know, the expert in saying, gosh, I just don't know what to do for this patient. You know, we've tried, you know, 10 different drugs for their, you know, peripheral neuropathy for their pain, and none of them seem to do the right thing. What's next? What else can we offer? And that's where, you know, someone like myself would come in, look through the literature or talk to the patient and ask them questions about what worked, what didn't work. And so we really were an extension of, you know, what your physician or mid-level or whoever specialist that you might see is to really take care of that single person in front of you. Hmm. You know, you mentioned that the clinical pharmacist might be the one calling you and giving you a regimen or asking you about your stuff. But I feel like, and if any of you out there have this, this clinical pharmacist in your life that is active in your circle, please send me a message and let me know. But I feel like most of us parents who are raising these kiddos with rare diseases, we don't necessarily see you and we don't hear from you. And we don't know that you're going on in the background. And I wonder, how do we bring that to the forefront? And what kind of role could the clinical pharmacist play in the genetic disorder space and helping parents get the right doses, get the right meds, figure it out a little more? Because I feel like from my personal experience, a lot of the time at my neurologist, I don't necessarily feel like she's ever thinking 
outside the box. I don't ever feel like she's trying to like come up with a plan. I feel like we're just there. We talk about the meds that we're on and then maybe we'll increase the dose. There isn't like a, there isn't any sort of like future planning. I don't feel like it's kind of just, this is our appointment time. This is what we're doing. And it's not very creative. No, I think you're, you're, you're actually spot on there, Effie, in your assessment. And actually, even in my experience with Rory, I, I, even I felt that way, right? And this is my, this is my career and my job. I think there's, there's a couple of factors that go into play when I think about that support is, you know, one, I don't think that there is a, you know, really concentrated and diffuse focus right now in terms of rare disease and clinical pharmacy in the rare disease or even physicians in rare disease, right? We have our experts and our centers of excellence, you know, around the country, around the world, but, you know, they're, they're few in number and we all kind of gravitate towards the same ones. And I certainly felt, you know, in my journey, you know, that I was the one educating physicians, just like I'm sure you you do as a mom on, you know, what you're willing to risk for your kid and what you're willing to be creative on. And I think, again, where I have grown up in the pharmacy world and in the healthcare world, there's a hesitancy around the unknown and risk and benefit and um, you hear a lot about medical legal. Um, and so I think there sometimes is this underpinning fear from a prescriber standpoint, right, of doing harm. And I would love to see more pharmacists in this space because I think we're, we're willing to, you know, dig through every crevice and find the answer to whatever the question that's being asked and help to support, you know, the patient, but also the physician in providing consent and balancing benefits and risks around medication and being able to push the envelope a little bit because for for us and our kids, like that's imperative to see anything, to see the smallest things, to see, you know, like Ford saying a word, right? Or, you know, being able to like pick up, you know, a peanut butter and jelly square or anything, right? Those things matter to us as moms and, and dads. And the doctors don't always get to see those things. So yeah, we need more. The, the world needs more of, more of me, more of us um, <laughs> and, and a self-professional promotion, even though that's my past life, because I do think that we can we can provide better care in a space that that is really lacking and support. So if you're there, if there are, obviously we need more, but if they're there, how as parents do we get you on board on our team? Like, how do we bring this up to our doctors? How do we say, I know that you prescribe this medicine, but I, I want to dig deeper and I want someone to like, who has more comprehension of all of the drugs available and what they do and how they react with each other. Like, how can we do something better? How do you get them on your team? How do you get your doctors to even agree that you're not a lunatic and you're not like WebMDing everything? <laughs> um, because I feel like sometimes you're definitely brushed off, right? Like you have to be kind of a maniac yep. sometimes to get any movement. How do you kind of pique that interest in getting the clinical pharmacist on your team? Ask. I'm in the biz. So I know like 
that they exist right at my local children's hospital up the street. I know they're there because I know who they are. And so I think that's the most important thing is when you're going is just to say like, hey, do you happen to have a, a clinical pharmacist or clinical pharmacy specialist here? I really want to talk about maybe some alternatives because they can refer them right directly to them and they could ask that question for you. And you're right, there, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And I do think in the pharmacy world, you know, bit of a, a little bit of an unsung hero because there's a lot that happens behind and we're not out there in front all the time. But I would just say ask, because if you are in a facility where that has sort of a, a specialist or, or multiple specialists and you're, you know, in a more in an urban area, you're likely going to have, there's likely some clinical pharmacy services available and you just don't know it. And so I would always encourage people to ask the questions um, and ask their physicians. And it might be something even they aren't using, you know, their clinical pharmacist for services for. And as you start to use, use them, right, that's what builds business cases. That's what builds awareness. That's how you get, you know, additional employees, FTE, to help support the space. And so that's what I would just encourage. Just ask the question because I, I, I hear you and I feel you to be in front of, you know, your, your physician asking questions and right, they've got to get to their next appointment. And again, that's, that's just the way our system is built. And there's also a hesitancy to push doses, to go outside of labeling, but in the rare disease, like for me, like anything goes, anything goes. Amen. <laughs> I think all of us are like, here, take it. Here's, here's all my stuff. <laughs> yes. And I think, again, if you're not seeing somebody who, you know, from a physician perspective, who lives rare disease, right, who, you know, is passionate about it, right? You know, I think, again, they there's just so much in medicine that is not understood that this is just a huge area that isn't. And so if you're not with that single expert, then yeah, you have to ask for other support. And I would just say, hey, do you have a clinical pharmacy specialist who might take a look at my meds? Or I'd really like to increase the dose of this one. Or, you know, what's the risk of me doing this? Or, you know, that's that's what we're here for. I mean, I mean, I've, I've been through seven years of school and a to residencies. I've got, I've got a lot a lot of training to be able to answer those questions and that's what I want to do. I want to give you the support and your kid the support and, you know, the the medical team the support that they need to do the right thing, you know, to make a difference. Lots of parents in our in our community have like sleuthed out their own drugs that they want to try on their kids and, you know, like Sanath and Michelle and even myself have kind of toyed with dosage and then other medications. And I know you yourself even prescribed medicine to Rory at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And when you did that, was that you just like figuring it out because that's what you do? Or were you having problems getting like off-label drugs administered to Rory? So it depended on who I was interacting with. You know, for me, because I worked in a healthcare system and I knew her pedi her pediatricians, right? Her providers, her general providers personally and professionally, I could do it, right? I could escalate doses past the labeling. I could look stuff up and, you know, um, have a di have a dialogue and you know, like just put in like, here's what I would like you to prescribe for me. And I think 
because they knew me and, you know, trusted me and knew that I understood the benefits and the risks of doing what I was doing, right? Um, I had that support. I certainly, like I've heard from you and Michelle and, and so many others, when I would run into, you know, someone I didn't know as well personally, I had the same battles and the same conversations, right? You know, specifically remember around like rescue medicines because Rory was, you know, a teeny tiny little peanut. And, you know, I wanted a rescue medicine for her because her seizures were lasting, you know, sometimes up to eight minutes. And, you know, that's not supposed to happen, right? And so I had to fight for that. And I had to, you know, produce protocols. And I had to call my own neurology clinical pharmacy specialist that happened to work for me and say like, hey, right, please help me with this data and this information and, you know, how we've worked it to get this in place for kids down to, you know, you know, this weight. And so, yeah, I've been in the same shoes as you, uh, not to dash any hope there. <laughs> but I think, you know, I still, I got to the point, right, where where we could, I could get some agreement and consensus. And for me, a lot of that really has to do with being armed with information and consent, right? Like you as a parent understand the risk and you understand the benefit and you're okay with moving forward on those things. Because in this case, doing nothing is more harmful than doing what you're, you're asking to do. In no world should a, you know, a three-month-old baby's brain be rocked for eight minutes at a time, right, every single day. That, to me, that just shouldn't happen. I don't really care what, what the data says or your, or your label says. Let's actually talk a little bit more about consent and, like, coming prepared and understanding treatment and also not doing treatment and what things can be leveraged. Yeah. So consent is the golden seal of documentation in in terms of balancing your risk benefits, understanding risk benefits, providing protection for a prescriber. And, you know, I think also providing protection for you as, as a parent in, in these cases. And for me, that was one of the things that I did a lot in my job when you know, we were really pushing the envelope on doses or, you know, different dosage forms or, you know, finding an N of one, like in a case report and trying to apply it right to, to that individual patient. And so I always tried to outline, you know, for the prescriber, like, here's the benefit of doing this for this patient, right? Here's what they get by going outside of the box, right? They potentially can get better pain relief, they could potentially get their thyroid levels under control. You know, here's the risk of not doing that, right? You know, you might have a small, tiny risk of, you know, an EKG abnormality. You know, let's get one, right? Um, their potassium might drop or get too high. Let's monitor that. And so I kind of put those things together in a fashion behind the scenes so that those conversations could be had between a prescriber and a, and a patient so that both sides felt comfortable, right, with moving forward um, in, a, in a shared decision-making fashion. And so from a mom standpoint, right, coming to the table was saying like, all right, 
here's the information that my researcher has provided, because I do know that that happens sometimes, right? You might be going through a, re a med repurposing phase and you can say like, right, here's the printout of, you know, of how this, how this drug has behaved. And sometimes there's a clinical pharmacologist involved with dosing or things, you know, of that nature. And so you can provide that information up front and you can say, you know, here's the risks that I understand. What else are you concerned with, right? Sometimes it's opening the dialogue on the other side to see, to try to get the other side to think differently, right? Because you're already there. Like as a mom, you're already there. Like, I'm going to do anything. And you're standing in front of somebody who has never seen, may, never seen this disease in their life and maybe will never see it again. And so it's trying to bring them closer to you. And so that sometime, somewhere in, you can find something in the middle and be able to do what you need to do for your kid. And so it's balancing those benefit risks and what you're willing to risk, right, as a parent and as a mom, and then trying to open that conversation for the prescriber on, you know, where their risk is. And if it's not there, then it's say, hey, do you have a clinical pharmacy specialist or somebody on your team who might be able to look into this for me a little bit more so that we can feel more comfortable with maybe moving forward or what other alternatives there might be? And that's kind of how I talk, think about consent. It's a balance and a compromise. Yeah. And it's kind of like that first step to getting the rest of the world to understand like meaningful endpoints to you and your family, right? Yes. I think about all the stuff that you just said in like figuring out what medicines to try and what dosages to do and like what plan of action and like all of the side effects that could happen and all of the benefits. And then all I think about is time. Like how much time would that take you on your end if you're getting patient after patient? I mean, granted, most aren't going to need like complex care coordination, but like that seems like it would take so long, but maybe you're so smart and so good at it that it doesn't <laughs> take that kind of time to like do it case by case. But how is that efficient? And also, do we want it to necessarily be efficient because we want it to be tailored to our kids? But how does that really come in practice? Like, realistically? Actually, that's a really great question. So it, it can be time consuming, especially the first time you do it for sure. But, and I'm not going to say like, you know, that every rare, rare disease, right, is the same because it's not, but there's also a lot of commonalities, right? When we start thinking about neurodevelopmental diseases, you know, and how they present. And, you know, there's a lot that has to do with, with speaking and not being able to speak or not be, having, you know, a recognizable speech or movement or even like the medicines that I hear about that like your kiddos taking, like I recognize those as similar medicines that I've heard, you know, in NARS-1 that our kiddos are taking. And so, you know, I... From an efficiency standpoint, like I think about those things and I try to make the connections, right? And so if you have a clinical pharmacy specialist on your team, right, they're seeing all of those things, right? Your physician may not necessarily be, but if you have somebody who is, who is seeing, you know, all your rare disease patients, right, or, you know, the really challenging ones or, you know, sleuthing out literature, they're funneling to that person. And so that person does get efficient in it. And they're able to draw and pull things right from other disease states and other similarities that might be, you know, you might be able to find some commonalities too, um, in order to drive some, some meaningful outcomes. So the first time it comes, 
yeah, it's like a few hours. I would, I would, I would definitely say I have spent two, three hours sometimes on like a single patient case. But once you spend the two or three hours on it, right, the next one is like, you know, two hours and then maybe it's an hour and a half. And then maybe, you know, by the time you get to three or four, it stops being so rare. And I think, right, that we've, I've heard Julia talk about this, like, we're not really rare, right? We're rare as individuals, but from a prevalence standpoint, there's so many of us. And so that's what I have always tried to do in my practice is find the link. And once you can find the link, right, it makes it a lot easier every single time. Yeah, basically creating a standard of care because it's happening and it's being implemented. Yeah. So how do we create awareness around this? How do we make this kind of a standard of care for our families? How do Who do we get the support from? How do we get these conversations started? Uh, because it can't just be parents grinding in every area of their life, including being on the internet all night and asking people what meds they're using and how they're using it and then bringing it back to the doctor every three months, maybe if they're lucky enough to get that appointment. How do we kind of fix this system or bridge the gap a little bit into making this more manageable and actually like working for our families? Effie, why do you ask such hard questions on a oh, Saturday? Well, Saturday? This seems so broken and messy because like I, I'm trying to figure this out and I'm so new to like the clinical pharmacist stuff, but I have been thinking about it for a couple months in like, why don't we have these people on like our advisory boards for our patient advocacy groups? Like we need pharmacists on our board. I agree with that. Amber Freed, who I'm sure, sure, you know, I've connected with her because she lives in the area. And I noticed she has one on her, on her board of pharmacy. And I told her I was like, so like, it's really one of the first ones that I had seen. And um, and I said, I was, I was really proud of her for including her, um, you know, a, a, as part of her board um, of advisors. But I, I agree. And I think for me, I think the first thing to do is, is really, it really is to ask. And, you know, whether you go to, to the doctor's office or visit or your visit with your specialists and say, like, do you have this resource? And, you know, if not, you know, is that something that, you know, you might be able to get Um, because physicians do a really good job about asking, you know, you know, pharmacy directors for support that they might need to take care of patients that can lead to better outcomes. Right. So that's what you could do, like individually. On, on a single grinding space, which I know is, is so hard. I get it. The other thing I think that um, I would really like to see is around a lot more sort of legislative efforts and in sort of pharmacy activity. Um, and so there are a lot of states that leverage their pharmacy, pharmacist societies to, to work for under a protocol. So allows them to practice a little bit more freely and and then also even with like RDACs, um, again, like legislative efforts that really help push, you know, having a holistic care team. Uh, and I think in the rare disease space, that is, it is key because the availability of therapeutics, FDA approved or not, is so small that you really need expert eyes all the time. And I think with the pipeline of therapies that are coming out, uh, that everybody in this space is pushing for around gene therapy and ASOs and, you know, repurposing potentially with FDA labeling, which is like a whole, these are like, 
you know, like 20 other podcasts. Um, those are all things that are, that are niche and, you know, need to be handled in a very deliberate fashion. And so I, I think as long as you continue to ask, people will start listening and partnering. And it's one thing where I've stepped into this space and I've, I've noticed it. Like I've heard people talk about it and I'm thinking, where are we? Where, where, where are the people, the pharmacists, where is the clinical pharmacist in this? And I'm trying to offer the support that I can with my knowledge, but even I don't, right? It's still digging, but I'm happy to support in any way that I can. Well, you're spearheading it, I think. I love that you brought up Amber Freed. Obviously, she's the queen of the land, and it doesn't surprise me one bit that she already has a pharmacist on her board. <laughs> well, and you know, I, this might not have anything to do with what we're talking about today, but the drug that she got, Maxwell, yep. right? I, in fact, I think it was it Rivicidi, Rivicidi. How do you say that? Was that the drug? Yep, Rivicti. Yep. Okay, so you know. Uh, one of my other favorite kiddos, Lil Camden, who has STXBP1, just got his approved for like, you know, $100,000 a month. But his mom said that his whole life changed, right? Same with Maxwell. Yeah. Like all of these improvements, but the drug is so expensive. Yep. But it also makes me think like as patient advocacy groups or at least certain neurodevelopmental disorders that have a lot of similar findings, maybe we should just be making like a master list of all of the drugs that our kids are on and what they're doing for our kids and kind of just have them as, I don't know, a cheat sheet for our own sleuthing when we do bring it to our, our clinicians. No, I agree. It, that's actually something Michelle and I have um, sort of like chatted back and forth in email. And I think she outreached um, to Neff as well, like, cause he's, you know, like the king of repurposing and also is like a tech guru. So, you know, like that's kind of, things that we've talked about offline as like a repository, right? Um, because I agree like this, the, the glycerol phenylbutyrator, the Revicti, you know, ha seems to have made a splash in, in many uh, subsets of neurodevelopmental disease. That, that's just been fascinating for me, for me, like as a, as a pharmacist to think about it. Uh, and I think, I think I've heard ketamine, right? Ketamine has also kind of been high on the list of, you know, really beneficial drugs across multiple spaces as well. I can't go into cost and approvals and that's just a, that's like a nightmare to talk about. <laughs> I was just going to say nightmare. <laughs> you know, I think those are all like, to me, I do think we need that. I think we need some central repository or website or something where you can kind of go and say like, all right, like here's right here's the the gene right that we're using it for. Here's the drug we're using it for, and here's what we've seen right as a benefit. And so it's almost like a repository of, of single case reports <laughs> that just isn't you know fully published. And I know you know, you start getting into a lot of sort of political things and INDs and IPs and, you know, all, all that sort of messiness and insurance and coverage. But, you know, from a global space, we do need that. Um, and it's something I, I'd love to work towards eventually. I just don't know. I guess, you know, I don't know where to start sometimes. <laughs> you know, it makes me think of Catherine Instant, and I'm going to email her after we talk. She's creating a platform called Variant, and it'll have, you know, all of the, these different rare neurodevelopmental disorders. And I feel like part of that product that she's building has sort of this idea under each disorder 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I'm I'm curious if it's sort of similar in the idea that maybe we could just kind of use what she's already built. Anyways, side thought. Great side thought. <laughs> I'm going to connect you to her too, actually. She's super smart, amazing, gorgeous scientist. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for schooling me a little bit in the role that a clinical pharmacist can play for our families and in the genetic disorder space. I think this is so important. I love the momentum that I think could continue, especially with you speaking up and everybody having a chance to listen to this idea and the importance of it. Is there anything that like I didn't ask that I should have for this particular conversation that we're having? Any advice that you have for families or any kind of directions, like an active takeaway that people should like go do now? I think you've squeezed it all out of me today. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But I think the most important thing that you can do is, is ask, right? When you go to see your physician and, you know, I know so many of us you know, when you go with your kiddo that you don't take no for an answer, but there's also some days where you just don't have it in you, right? You don't have it in you to fight because you fight every single day just to like wake up and continue moving on and forward. So I would just say, if you feel like you're not getting anywhere with your physician, just say like, hey, do you have, do you have a clinical pharmacy specialist that you know, I might be able to talk to, or can we just have a follow-up phone visit so I can talk about this? Because this is really important to me and important to my kid. And I know that still is a big ask for so many of you out there, but that is to me the most important thing that you can do. And I know everybody just continues to fight and grind and move it forward. Uh, And I just, you know, I just hope to be a part of making that one one iota easier for people, you know, in their in their journey. Thanks, Rachel. I know you already have. And I'm so glad you're with Combined Brain. And I look forward to learning more about this, getting to know you better and seeing where this all goes for our families. So thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate your time and for sharing about your family and your expertise. Thank you, Effie. I appreciate it. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, Please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you.